Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today we have Dr. Tyson Beach back with us. Dr. Tyson Beach is currently a teaching professor at the University of Waterloo, teaching courses on the biomechanics and assessment of human movement, exercise prescription, and low back disorders. His previous research focused on quantitative motion analysis, prevention of work-related musculoskeletal disorders, and advancing fundamental knowledge of spinal mechanics, control, and injury causation. He also collaborates with other researchers and practitioners to design, implement, and evaluate physical activity and exercise programs for workers and athletes. In this episode, we discussed the literature around exercise intervention for low back disorders. We talked about factors affecting how people lift, movement-related strategies to manage low back disorders, and how we can encourage people to participate in physical activity. You briefly mentioned a project that wasn't published yet on how changing stance width and external rotation affects how much people can lift. Is that the Carnegie paper you're talking about? I think that's published. Yeah, one of them. Yeah, Danielle Carnegie is a PhD student at the University of Toronto that I'm co-supervising. She has a really, you know, interesting suite of papers. And here's kind of the general idea. So part of it is actually this debate around lifting training, right? I actually don't know if lifting training will work. Um, I just, like we, not me, it's actually her work. So I don't want to speak as though it's mine. So she's leading all of this, but we don't really have any knowledge of whether it will work. I just don't think we've even tested it yet. (laughs) So a lot of her work could be perceived. I hope it's not. We're trying not to write it this way because I don't, we're not trying to say you should lift like this. But the idea is, is that, um, So in my PhD work, I did a study where we physically put an ankle brace on people and looked at how they adapt their lifting. And lo and behold, when you take a joint out of it, like you basically put a constraint in, it propagates through the system. And then your back basically has to become part of your ankle, right? It's got to be part of what makes up what you've lost. So if someone can't bend an ankle, like they can't dorsiflex, instructing them and directing them never to bend their back is not a solution if they need to actually execute the task. So we were taking this a little bit, you know, kind of broader with her, with uh, Danielle's work, is she's looking at how you position your stance with, if you're externally rotating to maybe give your hips some more room. And some people, you know, you've seen, I know you with your background and a lot of your listeners too, there's a ton of variation in anatomy, right? Just the bony anatomy in a hip and all the body. But you can have very different, range of motion ability, just passive, like what's there depending on the bones themselves. So to instruct a whole bunch of people who have no idea what their physical abilities and structure is like to say, don't do this, that's going to be a noisy research study because you're not really controlling for the fact that some people just can't do what you're asking. Right now. So her work is a little more proof for principle like although it will probably be perceived as these people are saying, never bend your back. The idea was, is that as you move your feet and go through these different types of scenarios, and you're also changing your trunk angle as well, that will dictate how far you can reach without bending your back. Like that's not shocking to me. 
so it just goes to show that, you know, if you're thinking about giving general directives to a population, maybe part of your training should be to assess and screen people and or, well, I would take it further if perfect world is say, is this a modifiable range of motion thing? And if it is, can we modify and can we teach people? Can we re-educate their motor system to access that and use it in function? Another way to think about it is if you isn't modifiable or it's not modifiable today, can I give you a different movement solution that doesn't require you using all of the range of motion in your back? So that's where the foot positioning comes in mm. um, as an example. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting study and I'll put it in the episode description for listeners to go read. It's also very interesting that the conclusion that on average, the sample population achieved greater reach depths with an externally rotated position, regardless of stance width, yep. but it's not always the best strategy for individuals. It's just on average, it is better. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, something I'm really grateful for, for my graduate education so whenever I did my PhD and my master's at the University of Waterloo, you know, a lot of it was with Jack, or it was all with Jack Callahan, but I worked with Stu McGill. And a lot of things that they really taught me, you know, about our philosophy here, it's why we measure things on people. It's why, like, we have EMG, because there's a lot of variability in how people coordinate movements. Sometimes it could be, you know, really quite behavioral or, like, kind of habitual. Like, there's other things that they could do, but they just don't do it. And then some people just don't have the same like pool of movement solutions because of the parents they picked, right? They could have a very different morphology that's not going to enable them to do things that someone else might. And I think one of the challenge, this is like more of a philosophical thing, sorry to go too far, but I get stuck on this because we constantly use frequentist statistics, right? We're finding averages and all these things. And you know, I've done some stuff over the years with my data I've published, you know, and we went back and look, you're like, oh, there's a ton of variation, right? So if you look at studies now that I'm involved in, I don't lead research anymore. Um, I'm, my work has kind of changed, but I really try to encourage my co-authors to put actual individual data in. Um, and it's not to say, like, we have to be careful. We don't want to make up stories, right? Well, look at that person right there. Um, we still have to, like, abide by we have to have checks for our own biases and we don't want to be kind of like, you know, creatively writing. So I have no problem with these, you know, kind of aggregated data and that type of analysis, but I've just seen it so much. There's so much variation in this. And, you know, is that really surprising? Like if I asked you, Tiffany, what's the average tree look like? Would you think like, what a dumb question, right? And I, I feel like that sometimes when we do research in this space, like we kind of like almost do that and it's like well, that doesn't not a really a good question <laughs> um to say what does you know what do all human beings between the ages of 22 and 42 you know what i mean like it's a very bizarre thing but we effectively do that with some of those analyses so um i am 100 not surprised that there was variation like that's what we expect and I think the more that we can present that, hopefully we can keep building. And statistical methods are getting much better for this now than when I was kind of, you know, really active and trained. And I hope that that continues. And I see a lot of these, even especially a lot of these kind of more syntheses, a lot more inter-individual participant data. I love it. Um, it's so great to at least see, because at least it just, you know, we start looking like, should we expect a universal response? 
from all human beings across all these different questions we have. And I don't think anyone really thinks that, but sometimes our experimental designs, they kind of like imply that and <laughs> they kind of make us do that in some extent. And of course, you know, things like ANOVA, they're using the variability, you know, to, to make these judgments. But I think it's a bit different than just quantifying how much variation across the people, but it's also looking at these patterns of variation. Yeah. I mean, for things like gait, the biomechanical literature has shown that actually we walk quite similarly, yep. given healthy, able-bodied, but things with lifting, movement adaptation, and when you get into the pain world, how people move with without low back pain. Oh. People move differently, but they move differently in this way and then oppositely in that way as well. So but even the gate, Tiffany, I remember you and I, um, when we were back at the same institution doing um, teaching and learning and biomechanics, I remember I used to teach this concept, the support moment. Do you remember that concept? Yeah. So maybe can you walk us through rather than me doing all the talking here? Yeah, I'll try to see yeah. if I remember stuff from a couple of years ago. Well, support moment, basically, if you consider the extensor moment generated at the hip and the knee and the ankle, how much of that is needed to help you produce movements like walking or squatting and whatnot. But then when you look at individual contributions from the hip, knee versus the ankle, people actually have a lot of variations in that. Absolutely. So beautiful. So nice job after a few years. That's good. I'm not surprised. I had to, we have to show your prowess here. But I think that idea I learned as an undergraduate, probably like you did at the time. And that was really quite fascinating to me. And now, you know, undergraduate was a long time ago for me. But I think a lot about what you just said, because yes, you know, people without known neuromotor issues or otherwise that would affect gait patterns, their kinematics are actually quite similar and quite stable. So, but I mean by that is the description of the motions, the angles, the velocities, those kinds of things at the ankle, knee, and hip. Those are fairly robust across humans within a given age group usually. But the actual kinetics, so the, the forces inside and the moments at each joint can be very, very extremely variable, even within a person. So stride to stride, your ankle a little less so because it's in contact with the ground. It has a little kind of less flexibility to change a lot, but the knee and the hip are constantly sharing. They're constantly like doing this back and forth, but we can't see this, right? All you can see are kinematics, but we don't actually see the underlying kinetics that, you know, the forces and the moments. And this is, you know, aligned with the theory we're kind of implicitly bringing in is that we can solve a movement problem kinematically like the same way, but kinetically can be quite different. And that's what I've measured a lot with, you know, using EMG and other types of musculoskeletal modeling, As you can see a lot of variation, even though people are kind of producing the same outcome, but how they get there is actually quite variable. And there's some people that think that that's actually a good for human health, right? Cause you do see some neuromotor disorders or other, that's kind of other ways to think about this, but where that variation actually starts to shrink. So people have less flexibility and adaptability in their system. You could make a musculoskeletal argument and some people have, although the data is not clear in this, but having variety in your movement solutions, even for a given similar kinematic outcome, like how the motions look, the internal, like the kinetics that are actually causing this 
if they're varying, they can actually distribute those loads to the tissues nicely, right? So you're not constantly just like picking away at this single tissue, just the normal variation for a quote unquote healthy or functioning motor system, neuromotor system is going to give you some of that variability and help distribute loads. Absolutely. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do remember studying sports biomechanics and how elite performers, let's say in tennis or dart throwing, elite performers can always achieve the desired outcome, or let's say, you know, landing tennis ball in the same spot or throwing into the bullseye, but they actually are able to use a lot of variation to achieve the same outcome. Exactly. So along those lines of talking about how research, if we aggregate the sample population data, we tend not to see individual variations and we may have conclusions that are not representative of, let's say, truth. I think now we get into the discussion of specific versus non-specific low back pain because a lot of research studies recruit chronic non-specific low back pain and then subject them to an intervention and then they find either exercise helps or nothing really shows. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the discussion on specific versus non-specific? Oh, yeah, wow. That's a that, that's a loaded topic. Um so I guess one way I like to preface it I think there's some, I don't actually, you don't know who thinks this, but I think I've had some cases where there's an implication that if something's non-specific, there's no cause. That to me is not what that means. I think there can always be a cause. There probably is. And the cause can be quite complex. It can be some network of mechanisms that are very different across people. So my interpretation of what is meant by non-specific in the literature is that you're not you know, suggesting that there's no cause, right? There's no like underlying mechanistic kind of way to think about this. It's just that we're not able to confirm what it is in some people. And actually a lot, like if you look at statistically, because we don't have necessarily great tests to know exactly, exactly what is doing, causing this symptom and this experience, which is even like, that's part of the issue, right? We don't have a pain meter, like we have a way scale, right? Um, This is an experience where, you know, all of these other contextual factors will amplify or attenuate people's experience, right? Potentially, that's, you know, kind of current thinking, and I guess at a really high level about this. So I think that's part of the confusion. But I think one is that, and there's good studies, but showing some different things is, you know, this kind of idea of subgrouping, there's actually not strong support across the board that that works. Although you will see very good studies where it does, right? So I don't know how to take this right now, except that I read exercise literature primarily and movement-based things. I don't know what this looks like in manual therapy and other kind of, you know, other interventions, but those interventions are so poorly described often that I'm not always sure (laughs) how to take, you know, a given result. Now, I know a lot of people will criticize some people who say there's no such thing as non-specific low back pain. And given the way that I just described it, I don't necessarily agree with that statement. But I do think there are people, and probably not a small number, where there are certain kind of activities or posture of motions loads that are more provoking or they reduce symptoms. They help you basically modify and manage your symptoms. So I do think you can functionally categorize things for people often 
in a good way, right? Like if you don't like bending forward, like you don't like flexing with compression, this is where the biomechanics comes in. If you have like a little bit of knowledge about how things, at least in principle, could work directionally, you can generate assessments and kind of interpret assessments a little bit differently in a more functional way. So I'm not going to make a claim. I know exactly what that tissue is, but I would feel comfortable saying like, look, I put this person in combined flexion and compression four different ways. And every single time that made her symptoms worse. Right. So if you were calling that specific, then I think that can be done for a lot of people. There will be people that I'm aware of, and I'm not a clinician. So I want to, I should have said that right at the, out of the gate. I just read research and teach about what I read. But I think there are people, you know, no matter what they do, there's nothing mechanically that you can change. It's this like unrelenting, doesn't go away. Like, I don't know what to do with that person. Like that is, needs a different, you know, for the people I teach, that's a little outside of their scope. Um, but once you've cleared, you know, so-called red flags, like the actual specific causes that we can see, like, yeah, that person has an osteoporotic fracture likely associated with their symptoms, or, you know, they have radiculopathy or something, and you can see clear stenosis, you know, the disc space is gone. Like, you know, those are probably, you know, that smaller category where you would see that, but there are going to be people where it won't be that clear, but it doesn't mean there won't be some postures, motions, or loads that they find provoking or relieving or don't change, right? And our job would be to kind of, you know, when you're learning about someone, this is what I learned from Steve McGill. And I think it's really, you know, helpful in the context for people that I teach who are registered kinesiologists who are not allowed to provide a diagnosis anyways, at least in Ontario at the current scenario. But once in the continuum of care, who they're working with, if we've kind of cleared these specific cases, um, I think these functional assessments are really quite helpful. So when someone's acute, you can like give them movement modification strategies, right? If you know or have some ideas about how the spine works, you can help them navigate and keep active and keep participating until you wind the sensitivity down. Doesn't mean forever. Just like right now, let's kind of bring it down, right? Now, if someone has more of a chronic issue, I do think choosing exercises, you know, that I think there'd be times maybe you would push into that pain a little bit. And again, I'm going to lean towards a physiotherapy expert or other type of physical medicine expert, but I think there's a case where you could, you know, do that occasionally. So if you're calling non-specific low back pain that you can't really confirm the specific tissue, yeah, I kind of feel that way too. Like I wouldn't make that claim. Um, but I think there are some people that think of it more as like, you know, I can have a hypothesis about what tissue it is, but it doesn't really matter because functionally I can map this out. I can take their activities of daily living or sport or work or whatever that is. And I can transform that into postures, motions, and loads, and then I can develop assessments and then you can help map this, right? So finding out what makes things better, what winds it down, what doesn't change, and you can help people design, kind of co-create something to help them manage this in the acute and or more chronic scenario. Yeah, I appreciate you qualifying that and saying that that symptom modification approach to exercise prescription seems to be a very common theme, regardless of where you stand in biomechanics. Like Stu McGill's approach, symptom modification, what you talked about, symptom modification cognitive functional therapy, symptom modification, a lot of these are along the same lines of thinking. 
Yeah. And I think where a lot of the things I've learned, I've tried to, this is one thing I've learned, you know, over time, especially since, you know, finishing grad school and being exposed, working with a lot of clinicians, reading a lot of research in this area, having people really challenge my biases has been really good because I do think how we communicate with people, you know, like if you're learning about people's attitudes and beliefs about their situation, about what they can and can't do, you know, how risky or dangerous it may be. You know, I actually really think there's this, or not, I mean, the data shows this too, is that's very, you know, how we communicate these things with people can be really counterproductive or very helpful, right? If they're holding on helpful beliefs about things, maybe, you know, we can work with them. So I think, you can still apply these kind of biophysical principles within a broader biopsychosocial framework, which I think people who do this do that, right? Like there's not this one thing kind of catch all. And I don't think you have to get into the arguments about like, I know exactly that that's, you know, the lamina of whatever, you know, that's even outside of what I'm would be allowed to do. So I don't even have to have that, but I would feel pretty confident like, Hey, every time we bend and twist, these things kind of like provoke it, right? They make it worse or not. Man, what a great tool for people, right? Just to help them recognize that. And then, but I think the communication is this doesn't mean forever, right? Like, let's just kind of wind this down right now and give yourself a chance to maintain your, your current activities and participation. And it doesn't mean forever and always. Sometimes though, I think we have to be honest, there will be some people who won't respond well necessarily to full expose like you know their pre-condition um and i think it's okay to reduce some of those like i think you can still participate in life and sometimes maybe there will be times where maybe that thing you used to love doing or the way you did it maybe a tiny modification you know is acceptable and that's okay because it keeps you going and actually keeps that symptom in check now there have been so far as far as i know two network meta-analysis who found specific exercises being more effective for low back pain. And we've talked about the more like a biomechanical understanding of how spines work can inform your exercise prescription or the words that you choose to teach someone an exercise. How do we interpret these newer meta-analyses that show specific types of exercise that help with treating low back pain more effectively and chronic right i think that's important because i think mm. if these are the populations so pain and function however you're measuring those things so the way i look at it if i was practicing and i do teach people who practice a little you know a little bit as well i think it's amazing i think it's very liberating to not have to have one specific way of doing things i think having options for people is wonderful so I don't like there was a time where I would argue, ah, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. But I actually like I'm very strongly against doing that now because I think that the broader benefits to health and wellness, you know, exercise tends to hit a whole bunch of things, not just, you know, a tissue based kind of hypothesis or like, you know, something that's confirmed for somebody now. So a couple of things about those are always important. So I do teach a little bit about these and I'm not, you know, a meta analyst or meta researcher, but I do think it's important that none of them are all that good and not great. Like if you look at clinically meaningful effect sizes, there's like only a few, even though like all to my knowledge, practice guidelines, like exercise and advice and education is always, you know, a frontline thing. But 
to the point I raised earlier too, what's tricky about it though, is they've actually, some of those authors have just published a paper just to show how poorly the interventions are described anyway. So calling something Pilates or stretching to me is so not like talk about nonspecific, like that's a whole bunch of things, right? So again, if we can abstract it, here's the way I think of this as a biomechanist is I don't care what you call your exercise. Like if you think you're doing Pilates and McKenzie, motor control, stretching, whatever that is, can I describe this and can I map it into postures, motions, and loads, right? You can do Pilates in ways, or you can engage in Pilates in ways that maybe don't put your spine at extreme, if that's something that you provoke, right? Now, how you communicate with this with someone can be quite different, but the fact that there are different names of exercise approaches I think is great because if you can find what people accept and what they are willing to participate in, the things that they cherish and value, like that's what I would anchor to. So to me, that's great. As a scientist, it's much less, um, you know, exciting because it's, you know, the data is, you know, there were things that shook out. There were some little small differences between the studies and depending on whether it's a functional outcome or disability versus a pain intensity score or something. You know, the worst part for me was that the effects still aren't great anyways across the board, but there's a signal there, right? They tend to all kind of show that exercise tends to support this. Now, um, I know I'm going crazy with this one. I love this. This is one of my favorite topics. So I also think too, we could read, and people have talked about this. I'm not saying anything original here, but I think just physical activity in general, like whether it needs to be highly structured exercise or an approach, I think we could probably benefit from a lot more discussion around that about promoting activity and participating in things i love exercise it's my favorite thing to do it's why i went to you know university it's what i'm still like that's all i really care about but i can appreciate that you know for some people that's not as fun and exciting to them but being active and not necessarily having all this highly structured, like you need to do motor control exercises and you need to do Pilates and you need to do McKenzie and you need to do stretching. I don't know why we have to fight that battle. And we don't, we don't have to fight that battle. But one thing I think is just like, you know, if you have worked with someone and you know, the things that or if you learned with them about the things that are provoking or relieving any exercise approach can be used. Like that's just a label. That's like, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways to squat, right? You can do that a lot of different ways. We've talked about this. So I think to me, I find that super liberating. Although as a practitioner, that's the way I would feel as a scientist, man, we have, we have to do a better job of at least documenting and describing what we're doing in these interventions. And I think one of the biggest challenges, and I don't, I have no idea how to do this. So I'm just going to be a critic instead of a craftsperson. But there's so many contextual effects of exercise that are so tricky. I think people's belief, we see this in sport and exercise science, right? Like even in periodization, you see like people's belief in the plan, their commitment, their relationships with their coaches and teammates, all those kinds of things. There's some kind of active ingredient there, it appears. And I wouldn't be surprised there's something in the low back pain exercise space where people's belief to what they're doing and their, their optimism around it, I think can be quite good. I agree with you. I am an advocate of exercise and hardly a reason why I'm in kinesiology, physiotherapy as a strength and conditioning coach, really trying to provide that opportunity to empower people to exercise. 
why don't we support that bias a little bit? Why why do you advocate for exercise? I think the case is easy to make from like a health promotion performance. And I think we've, so not only was I getting super far out of my wheelhouse with epidemiology, now we're talking about exercise, psych and communication and KT. I think what I learned from some of my colleagues was so fascinating because I think, and there's a lot of research on this that I was just ignorant of, you know, as someone studying on a particular topic, but um, I absolutely think promoting activity and exercise is amazing, but I think that we have to be, or we could benefit from, I don't like to say all these, you know, strong things, but not everyone is going to be super excited about the promise of a better future, right? There's nothing like, I don't know why, or don't think that we have to have one message like, Hey, if you, if you exercise and be active, you're going to have all these benefits. I think a lot of people actually accept that but it doesn't change their behavior. And there's no behavioral model I'm aware of that, that you would expect that to happen. I think if we, this is why I like, you know, some of the physical activity ideas, um, you know, obviously exercise is a type of physical activity, right? So it's not, these aren't independent, but movement in general, you know, properly dosed in the right context, like with social, there's a lot of different factors that will influence this. It can actually feel good right now, right? <laughs> So it doesn't need to be like, I'm going to go and just go all out, get really tired and sweaty, have to shower and be like sore tomorrow. Um, some people love that. I tend to like that style of training on certain times in my life when I'm, you know, have the bandwidth to recover with all the other life stressors. But I think we can absolutely be promoting and should, because the only thing I've seen in the low back pain literature that kind of consistently shakes up from a prevention standpoint is activity and exercise. And even then it's not awesome as far as the size, but it's the only thing I see consistently come up right now. That again is also challenging because I think I view low back disorders as a health problem, which means there's a lot of things that affect people's health and exercise. I wish it was the panacea that a lot of us love to say, but I, I do think we have to recognize that that can cover a lot of bases, but it's not, you know, there are people situations where that's not going to be the only thing that helps them. So I absolutely agree, but I think remaining active in general and participating in things that are physical, does it need to be structured exercises with like performance outcomes? Like, I think that's great. Um, if the person you're talking to, if that excites them, do that. But for someone who maybe is kind of like considering exercise or they don't really love the idea of all the structure and all the hard work, I don't think they have to start there. I think a lot of people, when they start engaging, when they start getting some confidence and competence, they start participating more, the motivation, like all these things can follow. And you know this with your background, this is like classic physical literacy thinking, right? So you're not just talking about capacities, you're talking about all of these other things that support movement. So I'm an unapologetic promoter of exercise and activity, but I just would like us, and I try to do this with my own, my own situation, just to be more flexible in how we communicate. It doesn't always need to look the same for everybody. I'm curious what you think about when people say, you know, I'm already pretty active throughout the day, uh, house chores, up and down the stairs, or even I actually do a laborious job. Does that considered as physical activity that you're talking about? Or what do you think? Oh, well, that's another good question. Are you referring to some of the physical activity paradox literature? Is that what you're, or is this not something you're thinking? No. There's an emerging research that 
there appears to be differential health outcomes, at least some, to when your activity is performed at work or if it's in leisure time or like other types of things. So what I mean by that is you could get the same level of physical activity. Well, that's a bit tricky, but let's just keep it simple. Like let's assume we can actually make it apples to apples. That same level of activity, there's some research suggesting that that can actually be health promoting if it's in a leisure time type of context. But from a workplace, it may not actually support health and maybe actually can have negative impacts on health. So, so that's one perspective. The other one too is I don't think we're very good. Um, and I don't think this is anyone telling themselves a story. I just don't know that we're all that good at knowing how much activity we get. I think that's why having coaches, trainers, kinesiologists, physiotherapists, so on and so forth, to be able to help calibrate people can actually be quite good. Just because, you know, a lot of people may not be working out at the intensity that they would need for their particular situation or may benefit from. And some other people, you know, may not be the intensity or just they're estimating they're doing more than they're actually doing. So hopefully some, and that, this is hard for me because I'm not like a big tech person. Like I like to, part of the reason I like to exercise is to get away from technology, but I'm like a weird one, I think, in this space. But I think like some of the, you know, activity monitors, wearables someday will, there some of them are pretty good right now for some activity, but maybe that will help to be used at per, certain parts of time to help people better calibrate. But I think the question you raise is good because we've done this with some occupational groups where they do have physically demanding work. And it's hard for them to accept, like I've been lifting concrete or patients all day. I've been on my feet. If it's say a nurse, like working shift work, so on and so forth with all these other stressors too, to suggest now that I go and exercise after that can be quite hard for people to accept that that would actually help. And some people may not want to do that at all. I still think there's a bit of evidence. I don't know this area super well, but there's some evidence that that's still actually will support health, even if you're tired and doing all that kind of stuff, if you are doing it in a leisure, but maybe it's not leisure, is not the right word, but a non-workplace setting where the other stressors and the context is different. So I think that's very hard conversation to have with people. And I don't envy the people that have to have that conversation, especially I think of someone like you as a musculoskeletal kind of rehab specialist in that area, that can be really hard I don't know. And I think, I don't know exactly how to navigate. I think it's developing, you know, a relationship with people and seeing what's possible and have them come up with what they think they could do. But I do think it can be health promoting, just a difficult conversation to have when people feel like they're already overworked. And, and that doesn't take into account any of the other social and cultural influences that people, you know, may be up against that may be easy to say, Hey, you should be working out more, but they have another job and financial pressures and relationship pressures and whatever that may be. Yeah. One last curious question. Considering that physical activity is very beneficial, even if it has to be done outside of a physically demanding job, do you think there's a particular type of physical activity that is better in terms of Getting back to the discussion of um, musculoskeletal injury prevention, low back pain, management prevention. So I have a really weird take on this just because I don't love, I'm probably the only person on earth and I'm probably wrong, um, but I don't like to think of, if you're asking this, I'm not sure. So maybe I'm doing this like cardio versus resistance. Like I don't view them the same way. Like I view it as movement. Mm. 
-hmm. you really just are performing movements at certain intensities for certain durations. You can call that cardio if you want. If it's longer, you can call it resistance. Like, I don't care what you call it, but to me, this is all done through movement. So I think movement is good. I think that for people to engage in movements and act physical activities that they enjoy, that's the one that I would prioritize. I do think what some people will call resistance training, I think is great for a whole host of things. There's evidence of this. There's also evidence that cardiovascular, like, I mean, that evidence is really quite clear. Like, but again, will that change behavior? Not necessarily, but I think I always lean towards what people like to do. Although, and then hopefully if you had the opportunity to work with someone, you know, finding opportunities to let them try different things, right? Because sometimes people's idea of resistance training or cardio is very narrow. So if I had you, if I, we were working out together and let's say we're going to do body weight circuits, right? We're going to do a push, pull, squat, lunge, hinge. We're going to do 30 seconds at a time with 15 seconds in between moving stations. And we did that for 45 minutes. Is that cardio or resistance training? Yeah, fair. So um, I don't know what to call that. Mm -hmm. Hit? Sure. Yeah. Like the way I look at it is tell me what movements you're doing, what intensities and for how long. And to me, that basically covers all of this stuff. Um, and again, I'm not going to pick that battle with somebody. Like I'm talking to you, you know, in a kind of different case. And I guess some people will be listening to, oh my goodness, I'm exposing all my ignorances and biases here. But to me, I, I would just communicate with the person that the way that they would want, like what they accept and what they understand. And if it's resistance training versus cardio, sure, right? We can we can do that. I just, yeah, I don't accept those categories the same way other people do. Very good to get your perspective. And yeah. If you think most exercises people do are actually movements. So what it means is you have an organism level stressor hmm. and to assume effectively that you're targeting one mechanism doesn't make sense. Have you ever heard of a runner who has like Achilles tendinopathy before? Yeah. 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 Lots. Right. So if someone's doing something where, you know, it's cardio training, tell that to their tendon. Mm -hmm. So when we apply an organism level stressor, we don't have the precision maybe we might like with how different system structures and their interactions are actually being stressed. So sometimes we can outpace say like a musculoskeletal thing even though your cardiopulmonary function is like flying along and your mitochondria, like, I mean, you can go on and on with all these adaptations, but your cartilage is not hanging along for the ride, right? Mm -hmm. It's not able to adapt at that level and respond. So um, in practice, in theory, which is hard to do, we always have to kind of succumb to the rate limiting or like limiting structure, organ system, whatever that may be. So would I do push-ups to try to get this amazing cardiovascular remodeling? I wouldn't be able to, mm. right? I wouldn't, I could, you know, make the push-ups easier, change my body angle, but I'm not using enough muscle and I'll get so much local fatigue, like a lack of endurance to be able to push my cardiopulmonary system enough to get some of maybe, maybe those central adaptations. So that I would just choose a different movement for different types of adaptations, respecting that every movement I have, I'm applying lots of stressors. And, you know, I think back to load management, a lot of people who struggle, say with running related injuries, apart from any biomechanics, like I actually do think there's a major load management issue here. For sure. 
because a lot of the cardiopulmonary stuff and even like the more of the physiological kind of peripheral things, they happen really quickly. But a lot of your MSK system, like a lot of those tissues are not that fast. They can't respond to the same loading. So basically those things outpace like your cardiorespiratory adaptations, they're going to outpace some of the musculoskeletal ones. So you have no choice but to think of this as a whole organ. Otherwise, you're just going to have lots of time where you're not running because yeah. you're not able or you're running in a lot of pain to try to work around it. And I wish I knew what that dose was. Like, I don't know. It's really hard in a person. But I think I always have to step back and ask myself, like, I know what I'm trying, you know, I know what I'm hoping to achieve here, but I can't pretend that all this other stuff isn't on the table, right? Mm-hmm. Like when people telling me I'm training type two muscle fibers, like really, you can actually do that. Like, that's amazing that you could literally target type two muscle fibers in an entire organism, <laughs> you know, to be able to do that. Um, are they involved like in certain movements and in certain intensities? Sure. But there's other stuff going on too, right? So Um, there's no such thing as specific training, right? Except the movements you're talking about the movements you're doing, the intensities and the durations, that's it. Now you would just choose as a knowledgeable kinesiology, professional physiotherapist, what movement slash intensity slash duration is going to kind of push this thing a little bit to kind of change, you know, to force it to adapt. But when you're doing that, you just have to be aware that there's other stuff going on too. Yes. So if if all you're doing is trying to hit a heart rate or you're trying to hit a lactate level or whatever that may be, that may end up with working with Tiffany in physiotherapy and not competing in the race next month. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's going back to the fundamental, fundamental thing you learn. First, your kinesiology, the fit principle, you're manipulating the frequency, intensity, time, and type. And type is movement. All I'm talking about is type being the movement. I think that's a really good place to wrap up. Any things that you wanted to talk about we got haven't gotten a chance? Well, there's a lot of stuff here, Tiffany. I don't know. I hope this won't be too hard for you to, to manage and that your listeners find some of this interesting. I can see I had a few notes and stuff we didn't uh, to cover, but I think we've covered a lot of territory. I hope that I don't give the illusion. I have no answers on this stuff. I'm. It's easy for me to ask questions. I do have a strong biomechanical bias, but I absolutely do not think that that's the only thing. But I also think when we're, you know, interpreting that evidence, it's maybe a little more nuanced than it can sometimes appear. And you know, sweeping statements like flexion doesn't matter or whatever, whatever it is, or sweeping statements like flexion always matters. I don't think are easy to support given the current level of evidence. Yeah, that's important why the discussion is important. And I appreciate you putting it out there that you're not trying to give an answer, but trying to lay out what the literature currently can provide us as an understanding of the subject matter. And I hope that listeners can find this at least intellectually stimulating as much as I find it and find this helpful uh, moving forward to sorting out the literature in this area. Thank you so much, Tyson. Yeah, I want to say one more time to Tiffany, thanks for the invitation. You know, we've had an opportunity to work together for many years ago, and I'm so proud of what you've accomplished and what you're doing here. So keep that going. You're representing everything that you do. You represent yourself well and, you know, where you came from with your training. So thanks again and best of luck in the future. That's really kind words from you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode on discussions related to the literature on spine biomechanics, low back disorders epidemiology, and movement strategies for low back management. I hope they were thought-provoking. Regular listeners here will know that starting this month till July, the mid-month episode will be coming from the students in the National Pain Science Division Student Committee I'm leading. It is my hope to inspire more physiotherapy students to learn and be passionate about anything pain and physiotherapy related. I'll be guiding students through the whole process of episode production, including researching the topic, reaching out to experts, formulating interview questions, recording the interview, and audio editing. I still host the episodes releasing at the beginning of the month. Please continue to support our podcast by subscribing and rating it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean, and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy. Thank you.